Barrett is a wife, mother, licensed marriage and family therapist, educator, eavesdropper, and emotion worker. She uses all of these skills to address the subjects we all struggle with in this conversation with the reluctant therapist. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Hank. Thanks for uh, introducing us today. Happy to, as always. <laughs> and I am happy to be here on this Tuesday afternoon. Thank you for tuning in. And uh, I'm glad you're here this Tuesday because we have a conversation that I think is really important to have. Of course, you know, I say that every Tuesday. I I believe that every conversation is important to have. But this is a conversation that might make you feel a a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit uneasy. Um, And I can understand that and appreciate it. But I I really encourage you to stay with the conversation today because it's an issue that's um, important to us as individuals to our families, to our communities, and to our culture in general. Um, It's something that we don't often talk about. And um, I think one of the reasons that this issue is of such great concern is because we don't talk about it. We don't like to say the word out loud. Um, So just to get it out there, I'm going to tell you that today we're going to talk about suicide and suicide prevention and suicide awareness. And I know that you are thinking I'm going to reach for my dial and and not listen today, but don't. I want you to stay. I want you to stay and have this conversation with us. And I want you to be part of this conversation and think about this topic, uh, this issue, because it does impact every family, every community, uh, every state in, in the world. Uh, everyone in some way has been impacted by suicide. And the thing that's so distressing is by not talking about it, we make the issue worse. Um, Ignoring it does not make it go away. It actually makes it grow. And so we need to be willing to talk about it. We need to be willing to sit and listen to uh, what suicide is and how it impacts families and communities and individuals. And so we're going to do that today. And I won't be doing it alone. I know that you're going to participate and call in with your thoughts and concerns and comments. And I also have a guest in the studio today uh, who is an expert on the issue and is going to help us kind of walk through some of the uncomfortable uh, facets of suicide and also talk about some of the hope in all the work that's being done by a lot of different great agencies uh, in our community and around the country. Uh, If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. We do gather every Tuesday to have these conversations about things that are important to us. And you can be part of the conversation many ways. One is by calling in. Uh, The other is through our Facebook page. You can like us at The Reluctant Therapist. Uh, You can check out previous shows, either podcasting us through iTunes now, which is really exciting. So you can download onto your devices and take us with you to listen at a later date or share with your friends. Uh, we have our website, thereluctanttherapist.com. I try to remember to tweet, but I'm not doing that well with it, uh, at TRT, um, EBTRT. No, I don't remember my Twitter name. I think it's at EBTRT. And you also can send me an email to elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. I always like to hear from you and know what's going on or how something struck you uh, in a conversation that we had. Um, so having said that, I want to talk a little bit about why this subject and why now? Well, it is uh, the month of September and September has been designated the National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Um, So we have this entire month to talk about uh, an issue that um, that is usually hidden. 
Uh, it's important because a lot of students are going back to school at this time. And shockingly enough, 1,100 college students take their lives every year. Um, so it's a good time to start raising awareness and talking about prevention, start looking at those warning signs or risk factors, uh, how we can help someone who's nearby us that might be struggling and how to recognize when struggling, when someone's struggling when we can. Also, uh, it's important to talk about survivors uh, because suicide is not an individual act. It actually uh, impacts everyone involved with the person who's taken their life. Um, a statistic shows that for every suicide, 100 survivors are produced who are left to deal with the consequences or the ongoing grief of this loss in their lives and um, also some of the stigma and shame that's associated with suicide and when suicide visits families, uh, how do they deal with and talk about uh, this experience? How do they address their communities? Um, so September has been designated National Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. Locally, we have a out-of-the-dark community walk that is um, I don't know, sponsored by uh, my guest today. I guess she is the, the chair of it. Uh, so we'll start with Jennifer Steele. Jennifer, thank you for coming in today. Hi, thank you for having me on. So you're the chair of the San Luis Obispo Out of the Darkness Community Walk for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So is it under the umbrella of the American uh, Foundation for Suicide Prevention, or did you start it? Um, it is It is a walk for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They have, um, they're up in the multiple hundreds walks throughout the um, country every year. This is going to be the third year for the San Luis Obispo Walk. Um, it started the first year. There are about 25 of us walking. Last year we had about 200, and we've already got over 150 people signed up already this year. So it's really growing, and it's to raise awareness for suicide um, prevention and support programs, and it's to raise funds for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And the date is set for Saturday, October 10th, which is outside of the National yes. Awareness Month. But is there a particular reason for that date? Um, we picked that date, um, honestly, because there's less going on that day than the most of um, the dates in San Luis Obispo. Uh, last year, we actually ha um, shared with the Wiggle Waggle Walk, mm -hmm. and we ended up crossing them on paths. So we changed it to that date. The, the events mostly take place in the fall. And that was a date that was available. Last year, unfortunately, we did it on the same date as the Veterans Stand Down in Santa Maria. Mm -hmm. And it's really important for us to not be on that date because the veterans is such an important population to be represented at our walk. Absolutely. So Saturday, October 10th at Mission Plaza, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that mm -hmm. uh, throughout the hour. Uh, Jennifer has a personal connection to this. You also sit on the board of the Greater LA Chapter of the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention. And you found your way to this cause uh, because of the suicide of your brother, Robbie, when he was 22 years old and almost 22 years ago. Yeah, yes. So talk a little bit about that experience and how it brought you to this place you are today. Um, well, Robbie was my best friend. He was my older brother, and I absolutely adored being a little sister. Um, we were both in college. Um, I was up in North Carolina. I was a junior in, um, in college up there, and he was on the five-year plan down in Georgia. And I missed any signs that he was struggling. You know, he was a very happy guy, he seemed like. He had an amazing smile, one of the best hugs I've ever had. And so it was really, really surprising when I heard that I lost him to suicide. Um, it was very sudden. Uh, he had actually set a date for his wedding. He was engaged. He had set a date for his wedding. So it was a complete shock. And um, 
I immediately got help. Um, I don't, I think about him every day. I feel the loss every day. Um, but one of the things that happened when I lost my brother is that it absolutely destroyed my parents. Um, they felt that there was shame to losing a son to suicide, so they didn't talk about it. They actually tried to keep it from me, even, but luckily his friends let me know what really happened. And because of that, my mother became an alcoholic. My father suffered from depression. He actually considered suicide at different points in his life. And so it really, really tore them apart. So I see from personal experience how just talking about this Mm -hmm. can make such a difference. So you feel that your experience uh, having gone in for help and talking about it and, and, and talking about what had actually happened helped you to grieve and come to a, a place of, and it's like, we never get over a loss, right? We, right. People always say, then, then you were able to carry yeah, on, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you find a way to, to live each day uh, fully by still honoring the loss of your brother, right? But Definitely. getting the help was key to that. It was very important. I know I started with, um, you know, college counseling and then have been in and out of therapy since that point. And it really helped. And it also helped dealing with the fact that it's a suicide and dealing with the other levels. There's grief is difficult enough. And then when you're dealing with a suicide, there's other emotions that are involved. Um, there's a level of guilt, which doesn't exist in other forms of, of grieving, grieving. Um, there's shame. Um, there's a lot of wondering how things could have been different. And so by dealing with the fact that it was a suicide and being open with the fact that it was a suicide, I could deal with those questions as well. Mm-hmm. Where your parents weren't able to access any sort of relief. No, no. I mean, my father was in and out of counseling at one point. And I don't even know if he told his counselor. So it, because of that, it, it, you could, it ate them up inside. If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. My guest today is Jennifer Steele, and we are broaching the topic of suicide. Um, we we want to talk about ways to recognize early signs. We want to talk about surviving uh, if you are a survivor of someone who's committed suicide. And we just want to be able to talk about it in such a way that it stops being this kind of hidden a shameful experience that families try to hide, as Jennifer mentioned. And you're invited to be part of this conversation, 805-781-3875, 805-783875, if you'd like to um, share your thoughts or comments, concerns or questions, we'd love to hear from you. And, and I want to talk a little bit about, um, I think, some of the concerns I have about the conversations that we have about suicide or don't have about suicide. Uh, and, and also to in all uh, fairness, to share that there's a very personal piece to the suicide conversations. This is the third year that we've done a show in September about suicide prevention. Uh, Suicide has touched my family in three different ways Um, since I was young. I lost an uncle to suicide and a cousin, and now recently a brother-in-law who has attempted suicide. And and it feels like each time um, that the, the... pace of mental illness and mental health crops up that people will say, 
you know, if I mentioned you know, my uncle committed suicide when I was young and he was in his early 50s, they'll say, oh, was he sick? Did he have mental illness? And I go, well, I think he was struggling with depression, but I think there were a lot of other factors that led to that. And the same with my cousin, you know, as soon as people, they want to know, you know, was there a mental illness? It must have been a mental illness. You have to be mentally ill to take your life. And I'll say, yeah, but I think there were a lot of other factors that led to this place of the mental disorder creeping in. And so one of the reasons I really wanted to have this conversation is because I I want to talk about suicide as not just a mental health issue, but a societal issue, right? That that there's a lot of information. If you Google or look um, at different websites or different organizations, they've created this really strong link between mental illness and suicide. You know, that 90% of those who commit suicide had a diagnosable uh, mental illness. And my concern is that as soon as we start to associate suicide with mental illness, it becomes the individual's issue, right? Oh, they must have been sick. Only someone sick would take their own life. But I think as soon as we make it the individual's issue, it also distances the community from addressing suicidal ideation or suicide in general, because we can say, well, I'm not sick, or I won't catch that, or I don't want to talk about it because I might catch the mental illness. You know, all those stigmas that play around not wanting to be ill. Um, And then we miss the opportunity to have the bigger, broader conversation about what drives someone to suicide, what societal factors drive someone. Because if you look at the two age groups that have the highest rates of suicide, the adolescents and white males over 65? Uh, Over 45 to 64. 45 to 64. There are some very strong societal factors in both those. For adolescents, we talk about currently, you know, the technologies and Facebook and use of the computers and the screen time and the raising rates of depression when we spend so much time disconnected onto technology. Adolescents struggle with uh, gender and sexual identity issues. Adolescents struggle with the incredible amount of pressure that is put on them to perform in schools and in athletics and with their friendships and to be perfect and to never fail and to always look happy. Uh, Adolescents struggle because they don't want their parents to worry uh, because parents tend to hover and be anxious. So they're not comfortable telling their parents when they're struggling. So there's a lot of societal things that can drive someone into feeling depressed or anxious that can then lead to to suicide. So from that perspective alone, we have to talk about the suicidal the, su- the societal pressures that can drive someone to make suicidal decisions. And the same with older men. Men tend to have the least amount of emotional support, right? Women tend to have great emotional support. It's one of the things we do well. We talk about those things that bother us. We seek out therapy three times more often than men do. So men in their lives, if they don't have uh, a strong support system, primarily it's usually their wife that is their support system. If they are divorced, Uh, If they don't have close connections with their children or with their family, men are at greater risk for being isolated, feeling alienated, having a loss of sense of purpose. Um, Three quarters of the jobs that were lost in the recession in 2007 were to those white uh, middle class men. And that's one of the highest rates of suicide. So I, as much as I can see the mental health piece that someone must be feeling depressed or anxious or desperate to take their own life. I don't want to overlook the societal 
implications. What do you think? Well, that's true. Um, the way people don't want to talk about suicide, they don't want to talk about mental health at, in general at all. And so there's a lot of societal factors. Um, it's very difficult to watch, you know, you watch a movie or you watch a sitcom and, and people, you know, do the, the finger to the head symbol, you mm-hmm. know, or you hear that stuff that people just don't, aren't aware of what they're saying. Um, and people don't want to talk about suicide. You know, one societal issue is access to lethal means. Mm. I mean, that's a big part of it. Um, you know, for example, they're putting the fence that they put on the Golden Gate Bridge. That's going to save many, many lives. And so that's another societal um, key to this, you know, another factor. Well, and it's interesting because I was looking at the timeline between someone thinking about committing suicide and actually making the attempt. And I want to say it was 40% of the time, the impulsivity, one in four is less than five minutes. Mm -hmm. Someone thinks about it for only five minutes and makes an attempt, jumping off the bridge, pulling a gun out of the safe. Nine of 10 attempts, uh, the people only think about it for less than a day. So when you talk about, you know, access to lethal mm-hmm. weapons, a couple of weeks ago, we did a whole show on gun violence. And um, guns are now killing more people through suicide than they do through homicides. Yes, it's so, the most common, <laughs> it's the most com- common cause of death by so suicide. We, so when we're talking about societal issues, gun violence, access to guns, mm-hmm. uh, huge. having media messages or images of violence, and, you know, making jokes or lights of you might mm-hmm. as well just kill yourself or you know, Mm -hmm. hurry up and die. All of this language can drive this behavior. Suicidal. Definitely. There's a statistic that at any given moment, one in 20 people are considering suicide. So by making light of it or not talking about it, it really makes a difference. And so what, what would be a way to address this? You know, what, what would in your in your mind, having worked on this issue and been involved with it for so many years, how would you like to see things change? What would you like to have changed to help more people? I think people just knowing what's available for resources, knowing that it's okay to ask for help, I think that's huge. And for men, knowing that it's okay to go into counseling. Um, there are wonderful hotlines available. Um, and I think that is the main thing is just knowing that it is okay to talk about that you're suffering or that you're concerned. Um, one of the main things is, is, you know, connecting with somebody. When you say, hey, how you doing? Looking in the eye and actually waiting for that answer. Um, so I think just making it acceptable to be struggling, mm-hmm. I think is huge. And I do think that, again, is a societal piece much more than a mental health mm-hmm. piece because our main goal in life is to be happy. And we tell everyone, just be happy. I just mm-hmm. want you to be happy. Yeah, just get over it. Just get over it. And we, it just be happy mm-hmm. no matter what. Do something to make yourself happy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can only sustain happiness for mm-hmm. so long. And then life happens. We have losses. We have tragedies. We have grief that comes in, transitions. Right. You know, people go through divorce or their children leave for college or they have a parent die. You know, our lives go through deep, long periods of grieving. And yet we only focus on the emotion of happiness. And so I think that gets us into trouble, that when someone is grieving a loss, we give them six weeks, and then we tell them, 
they have a mental illness if they're still yeah. grieving. Well, you know, really grief takes one to five years depending on the relationship you had with the person. So if you lose people back to back, you had mentioned earlier that you lost both of your parents in the same year, you know, that grieving can be a decade long. Right. And yet we don't allow for people to be in that dark space. And so then they become alienated, right? Because if you're still grieving after mm-hmm. a year or so and your friends say, how are you doing? And you say, I'm still grieving. They stop asking because they're, they don't want to hear it anymore. Right. I lost friends after Robbie's death because I wasn't the same party girl that I used to be. I wasn't as much fun. I had a friend say, you're not any fun anymore. Well, because I have a lot that I'm dealing with, and my life has been shaped by grief. And I don't necessarily say that that's a bad thing, because I like who I am, and I'm happy with who I've become. But it was completely shaped by grief. 22 years later, I have what I call bad brother days, Mm -hmm. where I still have tremendous breakdowns. So by letting people know that it's okay to not be happy, it's okay that everything isn't wonderful all the time. And just to be there for people does make a huge difference. And I think people start to fear feeling depressed or anxious because, again, we've tied it so closely to this disease model Mm -hmm. of illness that people don't want to say they're feeling depressed or anxious because the instant response from clinicians from, you know, if you go in to Mm -hmm. get help and you say, I'm feeling depressed or anxious, unfortunately, our disease model now of approaching mental health as an illness and a disease, if you say, I feel depressed, that first line of defense is, well, you're sick, you need to be medicated. And so that prevents a lot of people from talking about how they're struggling because they might feel I'm struggling. I know it's an issue I can get over, but I'm not going to tell people because I don't want it to become bigger. I don't want it to become an illness. And so how do we, you know, make a space? How do we make uh, room in our culture for people to feel sad, to feel anxious, mm-hmm. to struggle with gender identity issues, to struggle with loss of sense of purpose, and to say this, things aren't going well for me. And to have people be able to hear that and not run. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's difficult to hear when someone's suffering or struggling. We're afraid because we don't know how to fix them or make it better. Right. And I think, you know, so much of it is realizing that it's not your job to fix them. I just did a wonderful training. And then the most important thing that they said is it's not your job to save anyone else's life. It's your job to make them aware of the resources to help themselves. And that was huge. And that actually even helped me dealing with my brother's death to know that it wasn't my job to have saved him. And so it's really just a matter of of connecting and then knowing where the resources are Um, and, you know, resources, groups, friends, and just connecting with people in general. You know, we are so closed down as a society now into our phones that it's a matter of connecting. You're listening to Jennifer Steele. She is the chairperson of the Out of the Darkness Community Walk for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, She has given us her time today to talk about this very important issue of suicide and uh, encourage you to become aware of things you can do to help others, things you can do to help yourself. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and you're invited to be part of this conversation, 805-781-3875. Are you comfortable talking about suicide? Are you comfortable saying the word out loud? You know, it's a word that doesn't roll off our tongues easily. Um, We want to find euphemisms or other words, you know, Mm -hmm. passing on or taking our own life. Um, Suicide's hard to say because the... the, uh, 
connotation, what it represents is frightening. It's, it's scary to say suicidal ideation is frightening and overwhelming. Having thoughts that you might want to take your own life is frightening and overwhelming and scary to say out loud. If I say it out loud, will it come true? If I say it out loud, will that make it happen? If I tell someone, will they lock me up? Um, and I think all of those fears prevent us from talking about it. So I'd like to hear from you. Where are you on this topic? Is it something you talk about with your children? Is it something you talk about with your family? Um, has your family been impacted by suicide? And how did you address that issue? And as I mentioned earlier, my, my uncle committed suicide when I was in, in college. And he was in his, I want to say, late 40s, early 50s. For a college student, he was old. <laughs> um, but there was so much secretiveness around that issue in my family, not wanting to admit what had really happened and not wanting to talk about it. And fortunately, my father was someone who was really comfortable, maybe not comfortable, but felt the need to be honest about what had happened. And so my family felt very comfortable talking about the details and talking about what maybe led my uncle to this decision and, and things he wasn't able to talk about or the societal pressures that led him to taking his own life. And, and those are the conversations, just like the sex talk, you know, that we're afraid to have with our children. We have to talk about mental health and suicidal ideation. Adolescence is very scary for young people. And suicidal ideation, suicidal thoughts are very common. It's interesting because one of the definitions of adolescence is actually little deaths. And part of that process of, of growing up, going through adolescence, is the deaths of your childhood. And they feel like physical deaths and emotional deaths. And so it's very common for adolescents to, to think about death and suicide. Um, it's also the first time that they start having those existential thoughts about what does it all mean and why am I here and what is the purpose of life. And so these are conversations that need to be had out loud. Because when we're left alone to ruminate with all of these dark thoughts, they they start to take hold. Yeah, definitely. And there are, I think there are a lot of parents who don't want to mention it to their kids. They don't want to give them that idea. And that's one of the, the you know, falsities that people think about suicide is if there's somebody who's struggling and I mentioned suicide, maybe they hadn't thought of that before. And that's not true. Just flat out saying, are you considering this is the best way to get an answer. You might not necessarily get the right answer. Um, you know, might, you might not necessarily get the truthful answer. But by asking and by talking about it, you're bringing it up. You know, like you said, like the sex talk, mm -hmm. just not mentioning it isn't going to make it not happen. <laughs> Absolutely. And it doesn't mean that we're not thinking about it and it's not a reality. 805-781-3875 is the number to be part of this conversation. Lindsay, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Hi, Elizabeth. Um, I was interested in, and I understand completely your reasoning behind saying that calling this an illness is not a good thing saying, oh, you're sick, and that sort of pejorative kind of you're bad. But finally for myself, finally realizing I have a lifelong depression, I have a certain kind of circumstantial things that happened early in my life that made things more difficult, but finally realizing it's an illness, I get to go to the doctor, and together we can fix this, has probably saved my life. Mm -hmm. That. I, I say, actually, Robin Williams, the death of Robin Williams, scared the crud out of me. Mm. And Obamacare got me to the doctor. But that was a really important thing, just taking that weight off. It's not your fault. Mm -hmm. it's, it's something that you can go and it can be fixed. So calling it an illness and calling it a disease was actually, and, and realizing, okay, it's something that I've been trying so hard all my life to fix 
because I didn't because I didn't own up to the fact that okay, this isn't something I can actually think my way out of. Um, Robin Williams was brilliant; he couldn't think his way out of it, and so calling it an illness for me saved my life. I appreciate that, Lindsay, and I and I don't want to diminish the importance for you know for people getting help in whichever path gets them to the help. And so I'm glad that you shared your story because I think it's very important that everyone, you know, have that moment of I can get help or whatever it is that gets them in the door. And and the reason that I, I try to minimize the piece of the illness is because I think it prevents just as many people from going to get help. And so I, I try to yeah. normalize it both ways is that, you know, it, however you can feel comfortable addressing how you're feeling, um, that's the most important piece. Yeah. I just think there might be an important point to be made in sort of taking that stigma, saying it's okay. If you have the flu, you go to the doctor. This is, it's okay. It's not your fault. You, it, you go to the doctor. Every single cell is involved when you're depressed. Every single cell of your body. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's definitely just like you go to the flu, go to the doctor for the flu. It's, it's really okay to go to the doctor when you're feeling this bad and nothing gets you out of it. And, it's really okay. And I do hope, so. Lindsay, that, that going to the doctor is one piece of it. But, you know, statistically, the doctor is, is not as successful as the talk therapy along with a visit to the doctor. So I, I want to make sure that that point is made also, that it's not well, just, go, it's not the flu. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've, certainly, I've certainly done all of that. But the, 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 the piece that really made the huge difference was getting was frankly getting to the psychiatrist to somebody who actually dealt with all the whole piece, yes. all of that. And I'm so glad so. you found the right person too, because that also is yeah. critical, right? Finding the right person who will listen to your story and address it in a way that's helpful for you. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so, so much for yeah, sharing your story. Yeah, and I really appreciate the program too. Thank and, you. Yeah. Call in again. I always love mm-hmm. your perspective. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. I'm joined in the studio today by Jennifer Steele. Um, We're talking about suicide. It's Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month, this month of September. I know this is a conversation you don't want to have. You're probably not wanting to listen to, but you need to stay here. You need to stay with us because it's important to be able to talk about it. And it's important to be able to demystify a little bit uh, suicidal ideation and suicide prevention um, because not talking about it, as Jennifer mentioned earlier, doesn't make it go away. So let's take a moment to talk about um, some of the warning signs because, you know, one of the things that happens for survivors is that when a suicide happens, there's always the questionings of why didn't I notice this? Why didn't I recognize something was happening? How could I have helped? And first, it's important to say that you might not have been able to help (laughs) and and you might not have been able to save and, and there might not have been the actual warning signs, but there are some warning signs that that might help you to um, reach out to someone. Do you want to mention a few of them? Um, Yeah. Um, Obviously, it's not always as easy as someone talking about wanting to kill themselves. Um, But there are signs, um, things like people who say that they're trapped or say that they're feeling pain, Um, people who withdraw, um, maybe um, fall into drugs and alcohol that weren't there before, um, sleeping too much, sleeping too little, you know, with students missing class. Um, one of the signs could be people giving away things is a pretty obvious sign, you know, giving away is your favorite guitar and, and that sort of thing. Um, isolation, 
Mm-hmm. Um, now in the in the age of, of Facebook, you know, even that post that says, I don't know why I bother, um, that could be a sign. Um, and just, you know, agitation, rage, basically the, the signs of, of someone not being themselves, not being what they were before. Right. Dramatic mood swings, mm-hmm. increased use of drug and alcohol. Uh, one in three people who commit suicide are intoxicated at the time. So increased use of drug and alcohol is, is a big uh, warning sign. And as you mentioned, social withdrawal from family, friends, and from their community. And again, we talk about the societal pressures on individuals. And, you know, when people are feeling hopeless or trapped, or that there's no way out, maybe for financial, you know, reasons, or they're having a hard time finding work, or they, you know, feel hopeless about the environment. I mean, there's a lot of things Mm -hmm. that can drive someone to feeling like they're trapped or there's no way out. And so when you're having these conversations, it's important to address, uh, say, are you feeling suicidal? And to be able to say that out loud um, and to be able to ask them if they do say, yes, I am feeling suicidal. One of the first things is, do you have a plan for this? Have you thought about how you would actually take your life? And if they do say yes and they have the means and they're talking about it, then this is this is an imminent threat. Mm-hmm. This is a big concern where you need to get them to help, where you either call the um, National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-TALK. You call that or you call the local slow hotline number. Um, you stay with this person until you get them uh, to an emergency room or to someplace where they can get immediate help. When someone says, yes, I'm feeling suicidal, and yes, I've thought about how I want to kill myself, that is an immediate threat and danger. For other people, if they say, no, I'm not feeling suicidal, or no, I'm just feeling down, or I have felt like this before, then ask them, what's going on in your life? What, what, where are you right now? What is causing you to feel hopeless? Or what led to you, you know, feeling uh, like you need to withdraw? You know, to, to actually ask the questions and be willing to hear the answer. Yeah, that's huge. Um, Kevin Hines, who's one of the few people that survived a jump off the Golden Gate Bridge, tells a story about seeing someone on a street corner who was crying and everyone else walked by, but he connected and said, are you okay? So it's talking to your friends and and keeping your eyes open even on the street to people that you see. It's, It's kind of basically just being a human being is a lot of it. If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. I'm joined in the studio today by Jennifer Steele. Uh, We're talking about Suicide Prevention and Awareness Month, and you're invited to join our conversation. What do you think about this topic? Is it something you want to avoid? Is it something you're willing to discuss? Do you have an experience with this in your family? 805-781-3875. You're listening to Public Radio KCBX. Um, And... That step past, you know, noticing or asking someone or noticing the warning signs, uh, one of the fears people have about engaging, you know, what if I say, Mm -hmm. are you feeling suicidal or are you sad or you're depressed? And they say yes, and I don't know what to do Mm -hmm. after that. I don't know how to fix them. And the thing that's interesting from a therapeutic perspective, one of the reasons that talk therapy is so powerful is that 
quite often just saying out loud, I'm mm-hmm. feeling sad or I feel trapped or I feel depressed and having someone witness and hear it. And it doesn't have to be hours. It can be five, 10 minutes, you know, as, as short as a stranger taking the time to put their hand on your back and say, it looks like you're having a rough day. Right. Those acts of kindness can be enough to change someone's right. ideation in that time. Because as I mentioned before, for many people, one in four, they deliberate on the suicide attempt for less than five minutes, for five minutes or less. So imagine if someone had a five-minute conversation with them, five minutes out of their day, it would have changed that decision in the moment. And so we're not talking about having to have someone move into your home or stay overnight with them. I mean, it's, it's really those small gestures. Right. And you're not talking about having to solve their problems at all. It's talking to them and then putting them in context. What's so nice about the the suicide hotline, the slow hotline, the local hotline is that there are, you're able to call those if you're just with someone who's struggling or if you're concerned about someone. And so that's nice that the resources are there. It's not your job to solve their problem. So the numbers for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, uh, 1-800-273-TALK, which is 8255. And then the slow hotline, if you aren't familiar with it, is... Um, the slow hotline, it's with Transitions Mental Health. It's mm-hmm. wonderful. It ta- puts you into contact with someone locally right away. Um, it's 1-800-783-0607. And I encourage you to write these down and have them handy because they're resources that can be valuable for your family, your friends, or your community. And again, we don't want to feel alone. We don't want to feel like if I reach out and someone is struggling, I don't know how to help them. That's why we have these resources. There are these numbers. You can Google, you know, the AFSP, which is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Their website is wonderful and has lots of resources. Suicide is not something that's that exists out in the ethers with no support. There is actually a great deal of information, a great deal of resources that are there. So it's not something that we need to struggle with alone or be afraid of or, or, or avoid talking about because we don't know how to help. Um, 805-781-3875 is a number to be on the air. Garland, what's on your mind today? Good morning. Yes, I uh, want to address uh, one of the issues you brought up was shame. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you saw the article, but in this particular article, it was about a uh, boyfriend and girlfriend that ended up dying of an overdose from heroin. Hmm. And what was interesting about this is that the parents of the son decided when they did the obituary, they were going to put in the obituary exactly what the son died of. So they contacted the girls, the girlfriend's uh, parents, and they talked to them because they didn't want to create a problem with them, even though she died with him. So both parents decided that when they put the obituary in, they were going to say they both died of heroin overdose because of the epidemic that's happening with that and make the the community more aware, instead of being ashamed of talking about what happened, addressing it and making it easier for people to understand and maybe look out more for people that are suicidal or into drugs or all the other things, but from an awareness standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was one of the greatest things that two families could do Mm -hmm. to bring attention to a crisis. And and it is so important, as we mentioned earlier, Garland, that families who carry the shame and don't talk about it struggle 
Uh, Jennifer talked about her own parents who never were able to talk about suicide out loud. It, it impacted their lives from then forward. Her mother became an alcoholic and her father struggled with depression. So the families not only were doing a service for those who would be more aware of a heroin epidemic, but for their own healing, to be able to take the community support and love because of what happened. Exactly. And if we did that and addressed it to all the areas, I think we as a society would improve in a lot of ways where we would be more aware or be more attuned to look out for the telltale signs of, Mm -hmm. you see that person that's sitting on the bench is crying. You know, to take the time and approach them and say, what's wrong? Is there something I can do to help you? Mm -hmm. You know, the communication is the key. And I think the more that we go back to the communication, the more we will heal our society. Thank you, Garland. Well said. You know, and it is um, that fear of reaching out and not knowing what to do once someone says, I need help. And again, that's why it, it, it might be really important, just like we carry uh, information in our purse about our, you know, health care and our credit cards and our passwords yeah. to our different things. Maybe you carry a card in your purse with a couple, you know, the suicide hotline number or the slow hotline number so that if you come across someone, you have a resource that you can give aside from just the gift of smiling and seeing someone. 805-781-3875. JoLynn, you're on the air. What's on your mind? Hi there. Hi. Um, I've been listening for the last 45 minutes, and thank you both. Um, I just wanted to uh, take you back a little bit and, I guess, make a comment um, about where I've come. In uh, 2006, I unfortunately had the loss first of my dog, and then my sister, younger sister, suddenly died. And then um, my ex and I broke up, and uh, I got a call uh, that my brother had taken his own life, Um, and I also had just, it was just a crushing blow year, obviously, Um, and with that, I really didn't know where to go. I basically just hunkered into the house and um, really just wanted to die, because my whole family was gone, it seemed like. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything I was uh, attached to And at the end of 2006, I was fortunate enough uh, with the Werewolf to watch Oprah, and she had a couple named Yvonne and Rich uh, from Challenge Day, who I went immediately to their three-day workshops because what they do is anti-bully programs in the high school and junior highs for kids because they're killing each other and they're taking their lives, and the reasons they do it is, is because they feel isolated alone Mm-hmm. and and so forth, which is what I felt. Mm-hmm. So I, I did that. But the other thing that was probably crucial to the healing with so many things going on was a thing called grief recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find it on the Internet. I was lucky to find it in Lompoc, and it's a seven-week, very slow, ongoing class that's once a week that really takes you through grieving, with basically strangers, but not in a support group. You're actually working through the individual pain until it ends up, you're, um, you, you go through forgiveness, which is such a big part of it. And then later, as I've, I've, uh, I've healed through the years, and it's been long going, um, I, uh, I definitely tried to reach out to my brother, but I do believe 
as Carolyn May spoke in her book, that we all have what's called the spiritual contract. And that's what seemed to really help me, too, is that my brother's death was was of his own doing. It was not... Mm-hmm. It, it, it had really nothing to do with me. Um, so I never felt shame or anything like that. But my heart is so open now because of the forgiveness component. You know, reaching out to people more, starting an anti-bully program. And I just actually... Um, have a new CD out with the music in in regards to healing. Julian, that's, I thank you so much for sharing your story, one, and sure. also for sharing that it's not something that just goes away, that you actually had to take steps in the grieving, that you had to own the grieving uh, piece and, and to go through this course and to be allowed to actually process grief. Because um, I think that's an important message for everyone that when it comes to loss and death, that, that, we have we will go into our hibernation mode, but then at some point we have to start poking our head up and reaching out. And you you know you started with the anti bullying group and felt that this gave you a purpose, mm-hmm. and then into the grieving piece. And it is ongoing, and, and the grief doesn't just end and then we go on. That we have to find a place for the deceased to kind of live in our life in a different manner. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to call, and you were nodding your head. As yeah. You- well, her one statement about it had nothing to do with me um, because with the with With suicide grief, um, there's that level of what could I have done differently? Why did I miss this? Why did this happen? And what could I have done differently? And I know better, and I still go back to one thing I said 22 years ago. And if I had said something different, would it have made a a difference? And to know that it's not your fault Mm -hmm. as a loss survivor is huge. So that's a really important thing that she said. And it is an important piece to talk about because we're talking about suicide in the individual. But as I mentioned earlier, you know, when someone takes their own life, a hundred survivors mm-hmm. are produced from that experience through friends, family, and community who are all impacted by this and left to deal with the grief and the loss. And and I also, and I wish we had another hour of this conversation because I do also uh, resonate with what JoLynn was talking about, our own, you know, spiritual contracts and that people have a lifespan or the life plan or they get into places where suicide becomes a personal act. And there are philosophers who argue that at some point we, you know, it's our own personal choice that we don't have a moral right to condemn someone for choosing to take their own life. So I think that's a more philosophical discussion. Yeah. Well, um, I try really hard not to use the term committed when talking about suicide Mm. because you don't commit anything good. You commit sin, you commit adultery, you commit murder. And so I try really hard not to use even that term, that someone took their life or or died by suicide is what I'll say, instead of committed because in my mind it's it's not a sin. So you feel like, again, that's another stigma to Mm -hmm. reduce. Very much so. And I also want to make sure that, that as we talk about suicide and suicide rates, you know, my concern is the 1,100 college students that commit suicide mm-hmm. every year on campuses. And again, I think that's a societal problem mm-hmm. more than a mental health problem. And, and I, again, don't want to dismiss or diminish depression and anxiety and, and the hold they can take on us. But I think if we j- dismiss uh, young adolescent suicides as being a mental illness issue, then we dismiss the societal impact that we have on pushing these students to have to be perfect, to achieve high Mm -hmm. things, to, you know, excel, to 
deal with gender identity issues. So dealing with suicide rates uh, in, in college is important. It's important to talk about elderly gentlemen or older gentlemen, how alienated they feel from emotional mm-hmm. support. But we also need to talk about suicide in the military. Because that is a huge issue. And I was reading an article that was sent to me, um, written in Government Executive Magazine, and uh, they were looking at the soldier suicide rate. And I had no idea uh, that in 2012, more active duty service members committed suicide or killed themselves than died in combat. Mm -hmm. 349 suicide versus 295 who died in combat. And that's shocking to me. And, and a concern, and the Army's been doing, I guess, spent a lot of money uh, trying to research what causes this. And one, they haven't come up with, you know, uh, they don't at this point still have an algorithm to help predict suicide risk. Um, but one of the things they did find out that surprised them was that it wasn't uh, necessarily a correlation between trauma linked to combat and suicide, mm-hmm. that the more suicides were actually happening to soldiers who had, had not deployed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the numbers—it's startling. Um, we're you, we're losing a, vet, a veteran or service member every um, every day of the year, and so locally, the vet center of Slow is doing wonderful things. And you know, they're basically opening their doors for veterans to come in and get help. With the National Lifeline, the Suicide Lifeline, if you press 1, it puts you straight to a veteran. And that phone line is actually um, manned by veterans. So you're immediately talking to a veteran. And what's nice is it's starting to get some press, and they're starting to talk about it. Because it's another thing. You know, back it used to be, oh, yeah, the person was shell-shocked. Mm-hmm. Uh, get over it. And so the services are starting to be there because the numbers are staggering. And so is that a societal issue? You know, we, they don't know if it's not the com, if it's not combat trauma, combat trauma related, then what is causing so many mm-hmm. service people to feel like they, they are hopeless or trapped or needing to take okay. their own life? I'm Elizabeth Barrett. This is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Jennifer Steele. She is the chair for the San Luis Obispo Out of the Darkness Community Walk uh, for to raise funds for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. The walk is on Saturday, October the 10th in Mission Plaza. Can people just show up or? They can. Um, so it's uh, the registration starts at 9 o'clock. The walk is at 10. It's a nice three-mile walk around downtown Slow. Uh, stroller friendly, dog friendly. Um, it's actually a very uplifting event, even though it's on a serious topic. Um, people can just show up. They can also go to AFSP.org. That's probably the easiest way to find it. It's a long web address otherwise. Um, but just go to Out of the Darkness Walk, or they can Google San Luis Obispo Out of the Darkness Walk and sign up. Um, it's free to participate, but fundraising is encouraged. It is the main fundraiser for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And what's nice is half of the funds raised stay locally. Um, we'll stay here in San Luis Obispo for local. Um, we mostly partner with local organizations and are working with the schools to get some programs into schools and into Cal Poly. So everything raised, half of it will stay here locally, which is wonderful. If you'd like to be part of the conversation, we have a few more minutes, 805-781-3875. Is this a conversation you've had with your your children? Do you talk to your teenager about how they're feeling? If they're darker than usual, and teens tend to be dark, um, but don't let them hide out in the room nonstop without any conversation. Um, If you have friends that you haven't been in contact with for a while, reach out, make a phone call, uh, touch base. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you know, suicide has touched my family on 
more occasions than uh, than I'm comfortable with. Um, and we've had a recent, you know, suicide attempt in our family, and um, someone, no one had checked in for a couple days, and. And finally, a friend had checked in with my brother-in-law, and that's how he was found. Um, and so it's those short connections, right? The, the the isolation is what gets us into trouble. So don't let your teen be isolated. Don't let your neighbor who is divorced or, you know, hanging out by himself stay alone too long. And the thing that's hard is that we are an individualistic society. So people will quickly say, I like being alone, or I don't need anybody. I'm a loner. And those are great, um, but we really aren't. We are social beings the human beings. And and I do want to spend a little time talking about some of those risk factors, some things that you can kind of pay attention to that might send up a red flag. And the first one is family history of suicide. And unfortunately, suicide, like a lot of behavioral things, uh, tend to run in families, uh, becomes part of the history, becomes part of the story. So if you have a family history of suicide, it's extra important to talk about it um, because it, ignoring it doesn't make it go away. You know, it's interesting. If The same with, with depression depression or anxiety or a lot of uh, alcohol and drug abuse patterns in families that get passed along. Just because we don't tell our kids that alcoholism runs in our family doesn't prevent them from becoming an alcoholic. It actually sets them up more for the possibility of becoming an alcoholic because they're unaware of the family history. So we really need to talk about the family histories. A history of substance abuse. Um, if someone has access to firearms, and again, I, we've had a gun control conversation but, you know, across the board, if you don't have access to firearms, we prevent over half of the suicides. If yeah. people are only taking five minutes to deliberate before they take their life, having access to guns makes that five minutes even more dangerous. So rethink that gun collection. Um, serious or chronic illnesses are a risk factor for suicide. Living with a serious or chronic illness is debilitating mentally and emotionally, and it is understandable that someone might have suicidal ideation. Gender risk factors. More women uh, make suicide attempts, but men are four times more likely to succeed or to die from a suicide mm -hmm. attempt. Um, men are less likely to talk about it. If someone has a history of trauma or abuse, they have a higher risk for suicide. Someone who's been under prolonged periods of stress has a higher risk for suicide. Someone who is isolated. And then we talked a bit about age. Uh, those under 24 and those over 65 are at the highest risk. Uh, someone who's suffered a recent tragedy or loss is at a high risk for suicidal ideation. And then someone who's suffering from sleep deprivation and high rates of agitation. Susan, thanks for waiting. What's on your mind? I wanted to bring up suicide notes. Okay. And I wondered if a note would provide relief for survivors or offer an explanation. Um, in my case, the only thing that my brother left was a note on his fiance's car that said, I love you. See you later. Um, he was supposed to have gone, um, with my fiance up to visit my parents and wasn't there. Um, so in my case, there wasn't one. I, I think had there been one, it might have made things slightly easier for me. Um, you know, there's been 22 years of, of wondering why. I mean, I know now why now is that he was in pain, even though I didn't see it. But, you know, I wanted that one particular reason, you know, I would, I would, you know, hope to dream it. So I think in some cases it can, but I think in other cases it could probably cause more damage 
because that will make someone think that it was their fault, you know. Mm. What's your experience with this, Susan? I've just been reading books from the library. Um, it's hard to say. Um, a friend, actually an acquaintance who I met at a support group, um, had committed suicide. And it was something that we tried to talk about in the support group, but it didn't go very far, um, which is, you know, that's okay. That's what happened in the group. Um, but I was just wondering, in general, I hadn't heard um, either of you bring up the subject of notes. Well, and is your feeling that that's something that would be comforting? Yeah, offer some. I keep coming up with the word explanation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's. I mean, I just didn't know if you two had more to say on that. Yeah, no, I appreciate you taking the time to call and and. Um... And and I, it's interesting because I often wonder if people, you know, are thinking about suicide, if they have suicidal ideation, if there is this long, you know, again, the majority of people don't deliberate for very long or they're intoxicated. So it's not a very long thought out thing. But for people who have come to a place where they were feeling great despair and then they, um, all of a sudden become very calm, that is a huge risk factor. Mm -hmm. And so my other concern would be if someone is thinking, should I write a long note? That is a risk factor too, Mm -hmm. that someone's feeling like they need to put things into order or should, you know, how I would go about committing suicide. Um, That, that, that raises a little red flag for me and, and makes me say, I hope you have a strong support system. I hope you are, you know, seeking, uh, the counsel of a friend and talking about these feelings so that, um, so that you can get the support you need. Because thank you for calling, Susan. I remember um, one of the first quotes I read about suicide was that suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, that quite often, you know, there's nothing in life um, that that can't improve. We may not ever get to perfect. And I think that goes back to something earlier that we talked about, that this idea that we're supposed to be happy all the time, I think, drives people to suicide. Because if you're living a life that's chronically painful or troubled or you've had a lot of grief and loss in your life um, and you're not particularly happy all the time, then it would be easier to say, well, then maybe I have nothing worth living for. Mm-hmm. And I think it might be more important to say to people, you know, if you feel happy uh, 50% of the time, then that's okay. a win, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> that maybe our expectations need to come down and that 50% of the time you might really feel like crap. Mm-hmm. Or, or be grieving some loss in your life. And I think those are important uh, things to talk about also because I think, that, again, that societal expectation that we're supposed to be happy sets us up. Mariana, you get the last word. Oh, thank you. I, um, when you said about not talking to your children about family histories, mm-hmm. um, the, it's really important because energetically, Families, children feel it anyway. Whatever the parents are going through or hiding or or a brother, you know, a sibling is hiding, everybody feels it and they can't figure out what it is. You know, it's like the white elephant in the middle of the room. Absolutely. And so that's why it's even more important to talk about the history of the family. And as you said, all the emotions, I mean, happy is only one part of the emotional spectrum. And, and um there's a big thing now that, oh, you've got to be happy 
everything's got to be going well or there's something wrong with you. Okay. And um, there's so many more emotions to feel other than just happy. Absolutely. Thank you, Marianne. A perfect way to close mm-hmm. things up today. Jennifer, final thoughts? Um, basically, my final thought is just to say that there's hope. You know, there's hope for people that are struggling and there's hope for survivors. Um, and if you'd like more information about the walk? Um, AFSP.org. So it's October 10th. Uh, registration at 9 o'clock. Walk at 10 in Mission Plaza. And we'd love to have everybody out there. And as always, we appreciate your participation in this conversation. You can check out previous shows at kcbx.org or on our iTunes podcast. I look forward to speaking with you next week. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for supporting Public Radio KCBX. KCBX.